Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We are building a community of people who are curious about the application of behavioral science to work and life. We do this through talking with interesting and insightful guests that often turn into very fun discussions. This episode, you should know, is at the top of the fun list. The top, Tim? I'm pretty sure this is right at the top. We've had, good, we've had some good ones, but this is at the top. John Sweeney is the author of Innovation at the Speed of Laughter, Eight Secrets to World-Class Idea Generation. He is a corporate speaker, an improvisational master, the Jiggly Boy. Did you just say Jiggly Boy? I did. Okay. And has been the owner of the Brave New Workshop and Improvisational Theater in Minneapolis, Minnesota for more than 20 years. This episode was recorded live with John at our Behavioral Grooves meetup, which was at the Brave New Workshop. So Kurt and I wanted to bring the experience of talking with John and his outsized personality to life, so we were pleased that he offered up his theater for our podcast. In our discussion, we talked about a lot of things, from who and what Jiggly Boy is and how it is blown up. How about 11 million hits on YouTube as being blown up? That's blown up. That is. Yeah. We also talked about John's history in building out the improvisational training component of the Brave New Workshop, pitching book buyers with a live, in-person, knife-throwing demonstration oh, where John was the guy being thrown at. He was the target. It's crazy. <laughs> to bridging new and novel ideas in the corporate world. So there's a couple of things we found really fascinating that we groove on after our conversation with John. And one was the power of yes and, and how with practice it can become a way of life. And the other is the importance of psychological safety and how it's sorely missing in our corporate world today. We also groove on the concept of how do you practice improv when it is unpracticable by its very nature of being improv? and how we can use narrative to help really engage people. We also laughed. Mm. We laughed a lot. <laughs> yes, we did. John's self-deprecating humor is rare and wonderful. And we really appreciate you listening to Behavioral Grooves. We have listeners around the world and from many walks of life. Some of you may have no idea where Minneapolis, Minnesota even is, but you are part of the community of people that are interested in applying behavioral science to their lives. And that's all that matters. We would be grateful if you could help expand that community by recommending this or another Behavioral Grooves episode to a friend or giving us a good review on Apple Podcast or any other podcast service. Also, if you're interested in talking with Kurt and me about the work that we do helping companies positively apply behavioral insights to their organizations, don't hesitate to connect. You can reach us at kurt at lanterngroup.com or tim at behavioralchemy.com. We'd love to help your organization improve your bottom line through a behavioral lens. Please sit back with a fine improvisational beverage and enjoy our first live podcast in conversation with John Sweeney. Welcome, John Sweeney, to the Behavioral Grooves Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's my, since it's my theater, <laughs> I didn't have to go anywhere. I love uh, it. We have a very special podcast today with uh, the, the uh, owner of the Brave New Workshop, author, and a fantastic humanitarian, John Sweeney. So, uh, Also known as a fat guy from Wisconsin. So yeah, well, you, you know. You choose whatever you want to perceive. 
Is is Jiggly Boy a more formal term? Uh, Jiggly Boy would be the formal character name. Yes, <laughs> okay. that's what you want to do. All right. So for uh, we we start off with a speed round where we're going to ask you just very simple questions. We want your your quick response on this. And Tim, you have the first question. Unicycle or bicycle? Unicycle. All right. Uh, SNL or Second City? SNL. Own a comedy club or sell commercial real estate? Own a comedy club. <laughs> oh, we're going to get into that one. All right. So uh, strip and dance uh, in front of 20,000 people or talk to your kids about the birds and bees? <laughs> strip in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> well, I think that leads us to, uh, to Jiggly Boy, doesn't it? <laughs> I get one way or another, the, the road always leads to Jiggly Boy, I guess. So tell, tell people about... Who is this Jiggly Boy guy, and what the hell is that about? Sure, sure. And I'll, I'll prep this audience, too. Remember, you're in the Brave New Workshop, and since May 10th of 1958, our motto has been promiscuous hostility, positive neutrality. So <laughs> hold on, because this shit's going to get real, all right? Uh, so Jiggly Boy is this wonderful character that we developed. Uh, we do a lot of creative work for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Um, and uh, we got lucky. Uh, we used to dance with our shirt off and, and put things on our chest. And, and uh, when I mean we, I mean me. Um, <laughs> and then one night, and, uh, a little while ago, the night that Kevin Garnett uh, came back to the Wolves, uh, we welcomed him back with a, a dance. And apparently, Mr. Garnett had a fondness for Jiggly Boy. Um, and I mean that in a very awkward way. Um, <laughs> and it kind of caught on a little bit. And so actually, it was kind of fun because my sons and I celebrate this once in a while, but last night we hit 11 million on, uh, on YouTube, so Ooh, it was fun to hit 11 yeah. million. But the most important thing about Jiggly Boy um, really is what it tries to accomplish, right? So I'll just tell you the quick story. Um, so so we, we dance, and it's a Friday night, and, and we don't think anything, but all of a sudden while we're dancing during the timeout, Kevin Garnett looks at us, and I wave to him, and he waves back, and then he gives me a chest pump, and, and things kind of got weird from there. And, uh, and so... At 10 o'clock the next morning, my son comes into my office at home and he goes, Dad, Dad, we're at 10,000 hits. I go, what the hell are you talking about? And he goes, they put our video up on YouTube and 10,000 people have watched it. And I was like, first of all, I was like, okay, call the PR firm and the lawyers because this could be the last time I ever <laughs> give a corporate speech. I one dance and now I'm done. And then he came in at noon. He said, it's at 200,000. And they came at 4 o'clock, and he said, it's at 650,000. So we got a million hits in the first 25, 24 hours. And... Uh, I had never had anything like that happen to me before. And so I was a, a bit overwhelmed. And this wonderful man by the name of David Sherman, who's a photographer for the Wolves, at this, at that night also sent me all the stills from that night. And I just kept looking at, at you know, this odd picture of me with my shirt off um, and, and all these people around me, and they were all smiling. The big KG Yeah, and I had KG chest. written on my chest. But everyone's smiling. And not like, you know, Guthrie Theater smiling, like really smiling, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's gonna keep going. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. that would that would That's go right. yeah. Theater yeah. is the local theater for all of right. our international and, yeah, and listeners. If you want to feel important and forced to laugh at something like Christmas Carol for thirty years in a row, just go there. Just go there. Be sure to wear a, a mink stool. Um, and so, all of a sudden, I see all these people smiling. Right. And you'll see today I'm a bit odd, and I believe in a lot of uh, things that you could call spiritual or improvisational or weird or that sort of stuff. And I'm overwhelmed with this word. And then I look at the picture of Kevin Garnett, and he's got this gorgeous smile, this huge smile. And I'm like, why am I so obsessed with smile? And then I realize 13 days earlier, I met Kim Valentini for the first time in my life. And she wanted to come and talk about some collaborations. Kim Valentini founded the Smile Network International. 
and I had this feeling of, we got to make something of this, right? You don't, this is a once in a lifetime chance to do something so weird and so popular. So I called everyone I knew in, in web development and PR and marketing, and they were all so kind. And 48 hours later, we had jigglyboy.com launched. And you can go there, and I hope you go there, and click on Donate. And that money goes directly to Smile Network International. And as of today, we've funded 291 cleft palate surgeries for kids in, in third world countries. So that's really what I, I like most about, about Jigglyboy. So, yeah. And uh, if you see the video, I would just, I wouldn't recommend a full meal anytime before watching it, so, yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about um, you as an author. Mm. Uh, I, was, uh, I was really influenced by your first book about uh, innovation at the speed of uh, laughter, uh, specifically around how you took innovation beyond the uh, Stanford and uh, MIT, uh, you know, cognitive approaches, and you made it very behavioral. And so I was wondering if you could, if you could share with our, our, both our listening audience and, and the behavior groovers here tonight a little bit about why behavior is so important and, and how we act is so important about innovation. Sure. And it was really easy for me not to take the Stanford or Harvard approach because I graduated from a Catholic liberal arts college with a 2.3 GPA. So <laughs> I don't really fit in with that crowd. Uh, it is St. Norbert College, though. A little uh, pitch for that. It's a great sixth choice. Green if you Bay. Get, yep. If you, uh, if you get turned down at the other five colleges your parents want you to go through, it's a great sixth choice. Um, <laughs> So everything's a story with me. It's what we do here. We tell stories. So 1997, we're uh, fortunate enough that Dudley asked my wife Jenny and I to buy this theater, and so we do. And then this thing called the internet hits, and uh, people realize you don't have to go to theater. You can watch things on the internet, and you can do Netflix and DVDs and cat videos and all the other shit that's free on your phone. Um, and so our business, like most theaters, was really tough from 1998 to 2001. Uh, we lost a third of the theaters in the Twin Cities in, the, in that three-year period. Um, and so we, as small business owners, didn't want to go bankrupt. So we are like, what the hell can we do? Uh, and so we just kept brainstorming, and our school of improvisation um, my wife had really built that up, and, and we asked the students there, what are you using this, this curriculum for? And we thought they were going to say, oh, to learn how to improvise, and I, I like to be on stage and that sort of stuff. And then we realized about 80% of them worked at General Mills and Medtronic and Best Buy and First Bank, and they were actually using it at work to have more of an open mind, to be more collaborative, and to improve their innovation. Um, and so we just started having conversations about that. And what they told us and what we learned from them was that there was a missing piece in the typical corporate innovation program. And it was um, a subtle one, um, and it was, it was people. Um, and so what we found, and, and we, don't, you know, we don't have to put anyone on the spot, we don't mention clients' names, but let's take Thomson Reuters for an example. <laughs> um, that, that this may be what people have experienced in their large organization. Uh, the CEO goes to a party and someone says, innovation's really cool, and I just read about it at, at um, you know, Fast Times or whatever all those publications are, right? And uh, Fast Times at Richmond High, yeah. Uh, and so then he wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes, we need innovation. As a matter of fact, it's so important. We're going to have a capital I, and I'm going to take clip art and add a fifth pillar to my PowerPoint deck. So now we have five of these really important things in our company. Um, and and then, then they call McKenzie, and McKenzie charges them $2 million to define innovation. And it's perfect. It's the seven words that really do it. And it's so unique to that company, although it's just two words away from their competition, which also hired McKenzie to come up with a seven-word definition. 
And then we need this ability to engage people, or, or, or as I like to call it, um, have a website. And so that website allows people to have a portal, and they, they go in and they put their ideas in a portal by typing them. And then we, we use these algorithms to figure out if they're valid. And their ideas, we know they're valid because they're green, and those are better than the orange ones or the red ones. Uh, and then we need an innovation uh, leader, so we, we hire a second CIO, but this one's chief innovation officer, so he has cooler glasses. And, um, and then he, she says, we need the, the, the innovation council, so then we take someone from each business unit, and we, and we give them like a robe and stuff, and now they're the council, and oh! And, and, uh, and, and by the way, they don't get paid extra any money, and they also have their 80-hour week job, but it's, it's, innovation's still important. Um, <laughs> And then they have an innovation day, and then they have a contest, and someone has the best idea, and it gets $10,000, and it never really sees the light of day, and everyone gets depressed and leaves the company and starts a garage innovation place in Palo Alto or whatever. And then they call me, and they're like, hey, what do you do? And, and I, I say, well, I don't, I don't know what I do really, but tell me about your innovation program. And they just describe what I just said, and then I have this really odd, bold question. I say, oh. Tell me about the people. And then it's always silent on the phone. It's always silent on the phone. And, and sometimes it's, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean about people? Yeah, like, like what a bold question. What, what the hell would innovation and people have to do with Have you seen our website? <laughs> My god. There's can, green and orange can, different innovation ideas. 17 green ideas with our algorithm. It was unbelievable. It. <laughs> There's been four articles written about our innovation lab. Um, anywho. So then I get a little, you know, snarky about it because um, there's nothing more important than people, right? Um, and so then I share this, this kind of point of view on innovation. And mine doesn't come from anything but my experience as an improviser. So if you think about it, um, improvisation is a pretty nice metaphor. Um, because what we're doing is we're on this stage listening to our customers. They tell us what they need, what's important to them. And then as a group... We ideate and refine and strategize and find role and try to give them a piece of innovation that's at least as good as what's on the internet, but that they're willing to pay $35 for instead of free. And we do that in a production cycle of about two and a half to three minutes. And we have no idea what that product will be, and we have no idea um, how we'll get there. So the only thing we have is our behavior. And so people say, how do you practice improvisation? You can't. Because you don't know what the suggestion's going to be. You don't know what the content's going to be. But you can practice the behaviors of improvisation. Listening to build things. Being unbelievably curious. Loving and respecting diversity because you know it's the math of innovation. Uh, knowing that the present moment is exactly what it ought to be. This sense of abundance that, that you and your team and your point of view and, and the willingness to serve others will create something beautiful and fast from nothing right away. And so we took that metaphor and um, put a couple of corporate jargon words on it. And, uh, well, it was the only way we could sell it. Did you and, hire um, McKenzie? We, we did. We hired McKenzie. And then, <laughs> and, uh, uh, so that's why it's taken seven years to get out of that financial hole. But we're going to be fine. Um, <laughs> but I think what's refreshing is uh, perhaps uh, ours is a little bit more fun. And, and, and I think it just does really honor the people and... You know, the, 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 the kind of behavior and mindset of abundance is, is kind of an interesting um, point of view from our standpoint, right? So if you asked our industry, let's say our industry's theater, what would be the, um, the essential bare necessities you would need to create a piece of theater? 
And most people who work at theaters may say a script, a director, rehearsals, props, and costumes. But for 60 years on the stage, we've been creating theater with none of that. And so you have this amazing sense of abundance because you don't ever say, we don't have enough. We do have enough. We have the voice of customer and our point of view to serve, and then a culture that just says, yes and, yes and, yes and, and this kind of uh, mentality of our job on stage is to make everyone else look better than ourselves. And so you just feel safe. You feel like Dudley. You're up on this high wire, and your net is your friends, your coworkers. So what, what was the question? What's that? <laughs> yes, he did. That's right. <laughs> he was a single. He was a single tightwad. Well, you should have walked, done with someone else. Yeah, I like that. So you you, you mentioned a component of yes and. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's a big component. And we go back 15, 20 years and some corporate training gigs, various different things. And that was the one thing that I mean to this day I still come back to. So can you help explain what yes and is and what why that's important? Sure. And and yes and isn't ours. It's kind of the most common term in, in yep. all improvisation and, and uh, it's been around for, for a long, long time. Um, although Dudley was probably one of the people, him and Viola Spolin and a couple of people who started Second City, they, they really were kind of the first um, dissectors of the behavior of improv and what do you need to be able to build something uh, quickly. Um, so yes and is kind of broken up into two th places in our world. Yes is really kind of just the acceptance of your current reality in a positive way. This is what we got. And in our sense, that it's a suggestion in two minutes. That's what we got. Um, in the real world, it's this staff, this bandwidth, this budget, this marketplace, um, this strategy, this leadership team. Um, and so you get good at saying, I'm not going to spend much time critiquing what I currently have. I'm just going to feel grateful that I have it. And that's the yes. Um, and then the and is this commitment to move forward, to build, to go towards solution of innovation um, without really knowing the journey. But this, this great desire to build and to serve. And so you just say yes and literally every moment. And then it, you know, it's kind of like, um, what was that movie, Tremors or whatever? Like uh, Robin Williams, he, had, he played a guy who had that disease where it was kind of like Tourette's, but then it got so much that then you just stopped. You oh, and they that? were all yeah, kind they of were frozen. all kind of yeah. almost statues, right? It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like that. You say yes and, you say yes and, you say yes and, and then all of a sudden you just are yes and. It, it's not the dissection of moments; it's you're being yes and. And then if your teammates are doing that, uh, then miracles can happen. So one of the things that the book stresses is is um, bra not brainstorming just sitting around a, a table, uh, you know, with someone standing at a whiteboard, but actually uh, standing in a circle. You know, talking to people, uh, engaging, uh, doing games, playing with each other in a behavioral way. Um, why do you think that's so important, John? Well, I, th I think um, part of it's physical. Um, you know, I think our brain acts differently when we're in touch with our bodies and when we're movement. Part of it is um, distraction, right? So the biggest problem with brainstorming from a cerebral standpoint is this this wonderful monkey brain that tells us every idea sucks. And, and, and I still have that. You know, if I improvise tonight, I'll be up here going, oh, you're not very funny and all that sort of stuff. We all have it. So if you distract yourself with physicality or being engaged with others, it kind of quiets that, that self-judgment. Um, and then it, it really also it is, it's grabbing a lot of other stimulus, right? If you're sitting there in a room and there's a whiteboard and there's someone just going, okay, next idea, next idea, next idea, that just doesn't have um, as, as much kind of sparkly, shiny things and it doesn't provide a culture of energy where if you're, you're doing something fun and you're seeing smiles and people are lifting you up, it just, um, 
you know, I always kind of think of it as a good Irish stew, right? Like you got some carrots and some onions and some lamb, and, and then you just keep boiling it, and, and then the flavor is the innovation. And, and but individually, you just can't do it. So the other thing too is uh, almost always when when people are being physical in in brainstorming, it's an activity that they enjoy. So that kind of tricks the brain because you're you're laughing, you're having fun, and and the judgment side, the judgment part of our brain doesn't like that. Like, it's hard to go, oh, you're an idiot. Well, you're just having a great time. So, so I think the fun plays a part in it, too. Well, you're drawing, you know, from a, from a behavioral perspective, behavioral science perspective, you're drawing different associations. And so the associations that are lit up in your brain because you're moving, because you're acting, because you're responding to different piece of people is very different than sitting down and trying to be cerebral about it. And so from that perspective, it really does offer this opportunity to bring out some ideas that are probably a lot fresher and a lot more innovative than, than a, a traditional one. And I think the other one that I forgot really might be the most important is if you're doing it with other people and, and the rules of engagement of that culture at that time is to lift each other up and to, to yes and each other and, and to say, I don't know if that's a great idea. We don't need to know that right now. We just know that you gave it, so thank you then you're getting this smiles and you start to feel like smarter than you are and more innovative than you are. Cause I just said something. The whole group went great. That's a wonderful idea. <laughs> and then you realize you're like drinking your own medicine and, and <laughs> you, you feel strong and innovative. And, and then, you know, then it's over and you go back to your kind of horrible, lonely self and <laughs> fall off the wagon and the police get involved. And there's, Oh my God. Third marriages. We need that, Tim. <laughs> we need that. We yeah. need that. We need seven words uh, to describe uh, what we're doing. Well, uh, but you you also didn't you also used it uh, when you were pitching the the first book, right? I mean, you used a, a sort of a behavioral kind of a model rather than just standing <laughs> yeah. up and making a presentation to the book committee. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know how to kind of figure out what the behavioral science was, but what we like to say is we scared the living shit out of these people. <laughs> um, because what we did is, and you can imagine, I'm sure you have one of these at you, in your workplace, um, one of the people that we work with, his name is Caleb McEwen, and, and he's the artistic director of this theater, but he's also, in my opinion, the best knife thrower in the world. And I'm sure you all have knife throwers in your life. You, and, you, you um, all heard that, right? The best knife thrower in the world. And he really okay. is. He made it all the way to the final round of America's Got Talent. Uh, he's the lead of a, a, a wonderful group called the Danger Committee in there at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. But he can put seven knives in a post-it from 15 feet, right? Like the guy can throw knives. So we were like, wow, let's take advantage of that. And so um, we... <laughs> We you market a book. Everybody yeah. needs a knife thrower. <laughs> well, again, I think sometimes it shows that innovation is, is a bit easy, right? So, so I, I had no idea, you know, how do you write a book? How do you publish a book? I mean, I hadn't read one yet, right? And so, <laughs> so we learn about this. And, and so the publisher brings all these new authors to the Helmsley Hotel uh, in, in New York, and everyone gets 10 minutes. But there's like 80 people in three days, and then all of the regional salespeople are there, because this is back before Amazon, right? So they're literally driving to Barnes & Nobles with a bunch of books going, you should buy this one. So i like, tell me how it goes. And, 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 and so they said, why don't you come to one? And these authors were on stage pitching their butch books, and they were saying provocative things like, the cover is seven inches by 11 inches. <laughs> there's 143 pages. 
first is the table of contents. <laughs> they were describing their book, and I'm like, how is this influencing, let alone getting people crazy to buy your book? Because last time I checked, there's a million six getting published this year. So how the hell can you be anything more than white noise or, you know, a great place to start a fire? So we decided to do something tiny bit different, um, and so what we did is, is um, we, we built a, a four foot by eight foot, three quarter inch piece of plywood with some legs on it, and then we had a, the cover of the book um, printed, so it was that size. Um, and then I stood in front of that board and, and talked about the book, and, and Caleb silhouetted my ha head with 13 inch steel knives. Um, <laughs> and uh, we still, I think it's somewhere on our website, but what we loved is there was this dude in the front row, and he was just a nice gentleman, you know, he had a very sensible cardigan on and stuff, and, <laughs> and, uh, and when the first knife hit, he lost it, man. He was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> just talk about the table of contents, there's knives thrown around here. <laughs> so, What's the cover look yeah. like? So he got up and he left. And, and you see it on the video, and he just, he, and he kind of went like this, like, no, I, no, no. Uh, uh. So I was like, all right, well, he's not going to sell any, but we, the rest of the room's. Did, did Caleb ever miss? No, Caleb has never missed, thank yeah, God. That's yeah, that's good. No, no, he's really, really, really good. So. Could you expand on that sensible cardigan part? Yes. Uh, it, it, was, it was just a single line around the chest area, and it was kind of brown with a darker shade of brown, and it looked like kind of a, you know, Bill oh, Cosby didn't Charlie have Brown. enough money, right? It was, yeah, it was Charlie Brown. It was Charlie yeah, Brown. There yeah. you go. <laughs> it was wonderful. So, yeah, so, and, and, uh, and the good news about that is that it helped us sell dozens of those books just, <laughs> just flew off the shelves. Yeah. So, John, you talked a little bit about the beginning about diversity and inclusiveness and, and, and why that's important. Have, explain a little bit more about that as you're thinking about this element of innovation and, and everything else that you yeah, do. Yeah, and, and, and I always kind of, when I, when I talk about this, I always want to make sure that, that people know, uh, you know, that I'm not trying to be cheeky, um, that, that, I, that it, there's probably, you know, it's, it's one of the things I believe most in is the importance of, of diversity and inclusion. Um, but to be honest, when we started hearing that in the corporate world and people asking about us, we literally said, what the hell are you talking about? Because it was just so far away from our world. Because in the world of improvisation, you understand the math. And you understand that if the four of you are similar, you don't have a very good chance of creating something interesting. <laughs> but if the four of you are drastically different, then the math starts to happen. So we've spent our whole life as improvisers never even pausing about diversity, just cherishing it, just loving it, just just can't, you know, can't wait to, oh, I'm gonna start the scene over here and you're gonna start with a point of view that's drastically different. Awesome, we got something here. But the difference, of course, is that as improvisers, we take that math and we are, from our heart, obligated to take our point of view and move to a third place. And that third place combines both of those point of views. So that means immediate respect and, and this ability to say, wow, you are so different than I am, and that is so, Interesting. Can, can you give us an example, John? Can you could you talk us through an example? Yeah, I mean, it, so you know, on stage, I'll just make stuff up. But like, uh, you know, let, let's say, um, let, let's say the the uh, the suggestion from the audience is uh, well, something what, typical like throw something out. Yeah, what do you want to see an improv scene about? Fish sandwich. Fish sandwich. So so we're gonna do a fish sandwich scene, right? <laughs> and so if the first person comes in and walks in and says, yeah, kind of a stormy day out there, and the next person comes in and says, yeah. Welcome to McDonald's. Would you like a fish sandwich? 
we might have this kind of, you know, guy from New Hampshire who's out there on the Cape trying to fish and get to catch some fish in his boat, but he happens to be at McDonald's because we just threw something drastically different. And now, you know, we've got people behind him, and do you want to shake with that fish fillet, right? <laughs> My point Shamrock. is, if, if you walk out and the second point of view is very close to the first, then we can't double. We can't do one plus one equals three. We can just continue to kind of hit that point of view. And then from a personality standpoint, um, it, it's wonderful because it's even how we cast around here, right? We, we try to go, okay, this person's great. What's really, really far away from this person? Okay, then she'll do. And then what's really, really far away from those two? And because we just know that five people who are really different can produce something really innovative. So so we've been able to use that as a metaphor, but but uh, at first I, I, I was... I just don't. I just don't get it because I, I. I just think diversity is not only beautiful; it's it's necessary. It certainly do, is in my work. So, how do corporate innovation teams stack up in your estimation? When you 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 talk to, what two hundred and fifty keynotes a year, you're you're in the corporate world all the damn time, um, and you get to see these teams. How do you think they measure up Where, uh, on on the diversity scale specifically? Yeah, I, I wouldn't generalize them. Right, it, it, it's kind of regardless of industry. It, it, it's it's specific to that company, and, and I think it just goes right to the culture. Um, you know, if, if the culture of that organization is affirming, uh, is is okay with failure, um, is is this kind of um, we don't know exactly what we need to do right now, but we know the people who work here will find out that solution. If if they're in this mindset of service, if the reason they exist is for their customers, then it seems to come really organically. Um, and to be honest, if I had to say the biggest factor in determining are they a great innovative team or not a great innovative team, it's the leader. Yeah. It's whether or not the leader is walking the walk and talking the talk. And, and that's more than the PowerPoint or the books or that sort of stuff. It's, uh, it's the simple things. Uh, you're on a conference call, and, and um, are you paying attention? Or are you just keep hitting the mute button, right? You're, you're making eye contact in a, in a meeting, and, and are your eyes uh, generous and, and hopeful or, or demeaning and, and judgmental. It's, it's, um, are you, is your goal when you're coaching someone that you work with to fix them or to blossom them? Mm. And, and so, uh, so it really kind of comes down to that behavior. Uh, we use really, really um, kind of serious and important and scientific words. We call it the douche factor. <laughs> and, um, and so part of what we market our services is we go into organizations and reduce the douche. So, <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. It's like good sales pitch. Yeah, that oh the my gosh. Yeah, especially with the really conservative companies. They just love that term. Um, but you know what I'm saying. It, it, it isn't. It's not that complicated. Do people feel strong and loved? And and yeah. you know you can't say those words a lot in, in big corporations sometimes. But that's what it is. And and all the the only reason I know about that is because on this stage we'll have a standing ovation night. If this culture on this stage is full of acceptance and love and appreciation and this confidence that comes both from you but from the people who are affirming you the whole time, it's undeniable. It's like magic. The crowd goes nuts. But if we're kind of judging each other and, you know, even improvisers can have a really, really uh, poor level of quality of innovation. So the culture happens in real time. It's organic. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not just... It's not just the people themselves. It is actually something that is grown and supported and created mutually. Yeah, and, and we talk about that it starts with a culture of one, and then there's five cultures of one, but then because of the nature of our kind of business where we're kind of layering with each other and, and, and feeding off each other, then it becomes more of a culture of one, but there's five members in it. 
And so it's that uh, symbiotic, is that a word? Something mm -hmm. like that? I don't know. Um, but it's that kind of, you can't have the culture without the strong individual, but then you can't have the culture without the collaborative acceptance also. So, yeah. And you can feel it on the stage. Yeah. Like it, it's either a, whew, we got this, or, because it's, it's scary up here when it's not going well. Well, and you can feel it in organizations. I mean, you can walk into an organization. I've worked with enough organizations. You walk into, you feel if it is that culture that is inclusive and, and welcoming versus cold, calculated, and you're kind of going, oh, I, I better watch my, my uh, what I'm doing here and make yeah. sure I don't mess anything up because that's going to be really big. We could go on and on for hours, but let's, uh, we have a limited amount of time up on stage, so let's open it up for, for questions from the crowd. Anybody have a question that they want to ask John? Because um, I know you don't want to ask a question for Tim or me. So uh, questions for John, and then we'll repeat it. All right, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Um, can you, can you the repeat question, the question? The question was, the question was whether or not uh, you know me personally does a lot of keynote speeches for corporations, and the answer is yes. And, and the quick story is, when I talked about that period where the life changed for the theater, we had to figure out what to do to keep this place alive. And so I had worked for six years in corporate real estate, and someone said, you know, you should go. And the, your students are saying this training is is really good. Could you package it in a way that you could sell it? And so we started, I just started having lunch with, you know, people at General Mills or Best Buyer that I knew or whatever and said, we think we can help people change their behavior and inherently that'll lead to a more productive workplace. Yeah, through this improvisational mindset, right? So, so literally our training is people on their feet doing hours of improvisational exercises, kind of outward bound for the mind, and they're practicing really small, simple behaviors. Are they listening better? Are they deferring judgment better? Are they reducing hesitation? Are they, are they reframing other uh, ideas into something that's usable? So, you know, think of it almost as um, an innovative fitness program, and, and that our, our training sessions are kind of workout sessions, and, and they derive from what we do as improvisers, right? Like, the reason we're good improvisers is because we practice a lot. Those behaviors. Question here. Right. Well, those are kind people. Um, <laughs> so the question was, uh, the question was, you know, can improvisation be taught? And she was saying that she was an INTJ. And and for those of you who aren't as old as, as I am, uh, that's a Myers Briggs categorization <laughs> in the four different categories of Myers Briggs. And of course, I won't be able to answer your question until I tell a story. So 1997, I'm on the stage at the Brave New Workshop, and we decide that we are going to tackle this issue of the glass ceiling. And Dudley's directing the show. And he says, we're going we're gonna to blow this thing out. People are just lying about it. They're saying, oh, women now get three weeks after they have a baby. So we're really equal around here, right? And this was 97. So he says, so let's go outside of ourselves and ask women in the corporate world to come and be guest writers, even if they've never written anything. Let's learn from them. So like we had a person who was the first uh, pole climber for the power company, first female pole climber. So like she's up there doing this stuff. She's, she's the only one out there. And then my favorite was we had Rebecca Rand. Rebecca Rand was at that time operating the only working brothel in the Midwest. And it was in St. Paul. So she was a madam, right? And she was just awesome. And I'm, the, I'm the, you know, this kind of naive Catholic guy, right? And so like after the first rehearsal, I was like, 
Oh my god, she's a hooker. Ah, oh, I can't believe it. I was like, I'll turn you around. I was like, you sleep with men for money. This is awesome. And uh, so it was her idea, and this is what we did. And it's based on what you just said. We developed a show called Cinderella and the Glass Ceiling. And the idea behind the show was that Cinderella couldn't go to the ball because she was an INTJ. She was not. She did not have the Myers-Briggs profile to be accepted in the world of, you know, what it takes. Uh, we also made some fun that she didn't have a penis, and that was also a criteria to be a CIO in 19, uh, 1997. Um, but I learned so much from those true trailblazers, and it actually kind of lit a fire under me because uh, I realized the difference between the corporate speak when it comes to women's issues in the workplace and the truth that I learned from them, and that was 1997. So I think improvisation as an art form can be taught. You know, there, there, there's, there's simple things that we do um, to learn how to begin and, and heighten and conclude a scene. Um, we, we can practice uh, different points of view that are, you know, somewhat you know, often asked for. I mean, you can say, I've got a good Trump, or I've got a good Hillary, or I'm gonna be, you know, this type of person, that sort of stuff. But mostly what can be taught is the mindset that you get in. Because it, it, it's a bit kind of frustrating, but, but kind of like the Buddhist and the Zen, the best improv is those who don't try. And so you get to a place where what you're doing is getting empty and discovering the next moment getting empty and discovering the next moment. So you can teach someone how to do that, but it takes practice. Because it's the same thing with meditation, right? You're, you're getting empty and then <laughs> all the crazy thoughts come in. So yeah, we, we believe, uh, there, there is this kind of sense of rhythm, uh, sense of funny, you know, you, to be in this stage, you have to be well read because we do political satire and improvisation. But yes, and, and, and here's why we believe uh, why we can teach improv. Because every five-year-old in the whole world can do it. So we don't teach improv, we unlearn what we learned as adults. Um, and that, so that's really our service. You know, we chip away and we love, and all of a sudden you're back to that confident five-year-old going, I, I'll make, I want to play, I want to play. Yeah. How can those of us who are like individual contributors at a company, you know, not the CIO, how can we frame innovation Yeah, so the question we get a lot is, how can individual contributors, you know, when, the, when they don't have a, a place of power, they're not the chief innovation officer, or that sort of stuff, how can they, uh, and, and, I, and this wasn't the question, but I got, how can they survive, and then how can they actually affect the innovation of a large organization? It's back to that culture of one. The thing that I really love about technology is we believe that an innovative re revolution with inside an organization uh, is so much easier to do now because of social networking and, and groups like this, right? And so, so what, we, what we ask is that you, you have this strong culture of one and you believe that it's important to be innovative for the sake of serving others, and that could be your customer, that could be your coworker, and then you surround yourself with like-minded people who will keep supporting you, because it is a battle. And it's a battle not because of people who don't want to be innovative, it's a battle because of the, the two primary uh, parts of the corporate structure. One, it's hierarchical. We have a vertical org chart. And so by its very organization, you have people who are judging others and determining their career path. It's called 360 Reviews. <laughs> and then that can get decayed, right? And that can get uh, a bit wanky because of things like political stuff, who's, who's college buddy, all that sort of stuff. So it gets messy. So that makes innovation hard. And then the other thing is, the true metric of innovation is often profitability. And so we have this narrow little metric of whether or not something is innovative. 
and that just feels odd for us because our true understanding of innovation is whether or not the art is beautiful, right? It worked. It, did it transform someone? Was it worth your time? So those two things make it tough. So what we do is we, we try to create these little pods, right? Uh, I always think of reggae. Uh, you know, it's a revolution, right? So a little common language, a little bit of fun, maybe an icon. Is there someone in your organization, a leader that you really look up to or that they, they really are championing this? But then that, that little revolution starts. And, and that can be simple things like groups like this or volunteering or, you know, doing side projects as a team. But it's a tough battle, but, but it's worth it. Question over here. Yeah, so the question is, how can I create enough safety with the organization to kind of allow them to do that? The blunt answer is, it's not for everybody. Uh, we have done 126 of the Fortune 500 right now, so, so it, it's for a lot of them. But from a sales and marketing standpoint, it takes me a lot of time, maybe a two-year sales cycle, to build their trust up enough to do two things, to, to allow them to understand that, that this metaphor of improvisation and this behavior side of innovation actually can lead to productivity and profitability and kind of draw that path for them. And then to get them away from their understanding of, oh, no, no, we're different here. We've got some really serious people. They'll never, ever do it, said every client we've ever had, right? <laughs> <laughs> we used to joke that we could work with the National Association of Actuaries, right? Yeah. And then we got, but then we got that gig. And, and we, we, so I was, I was a keynote speaker for the National Association of Actuaries, and it was actually humbling because I realized how like judgmental I had been, right? I, I, they were awesome, huge drinkers, yeah. and and like they just went for it. They were some of the best improvisers I ever met. But um, and, and maybe we're going here with the conversation. But here's what we have to do: we have to somehow convince them that their own individual brains, the people who are buying our services, aren't necessarily right, because their brains are going to that mindset, the default mindset of fear and safety and profitability and risk adversity, right? So, you know, you've gotten to know me a little bit in the last 20 minutes, you know, just that. It's like, you know, get him out of here. He's, he's a risk, he's a, he's a, you know, <laughs> we don't want you in front of our, you know, HR department or whatever it is. Um, but it's mostly this fear of, wow, we could, we could produce things without perfect strategy and, and meetings and emails and all that sort of stuff. And, and what we always say is, probably not. But if you have that in your culture, then you can refine and perfect. We always use the example, my mom's 92 years old, right? And she's got a Medtronic pacemaker in her chest. I don't want Medtronic to like improvise pacemakers, right? <laughs> it's gotta be perfect. Um, but that culture uh, helps. So I wouldn't say it's easy. Uh, what's nice is, is that we've built our business. Um, we do one and it goes well and then one vice president will say to another vice president, oh, you gotta try this, it was great. And there's a bit of bravado like, yeah. You know, we're in operations, but we did that improv thing, so we're pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> the accounting well, class. I know uh, McKinsey's not a client. But yeah, well, well, and they're no longer a sponsor of this podcast. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. Oh. Damn it. Well, I'm sorry. Maybe I, I wasn't clear. I was talking about um, Mackenzie Phillips from the show's three company. So she's just, uh, we've had a long battle with so, her. Uh, one more question. Did some, yes. So the question is, describe the best candidates who need what we have to offer. Um, I, I'm pretty compassionate about this because you would think it would be those naysayers and those jerks, right? And, and sometimes people are just too far gone, right? I think the people who need us the most 
are the ones who in their heart know how innovative they are, but somehow have been told through Myers-Briggs or whatever it is that they're not. And if we can just crack that shell, even for a couple of hours, and let them rekindle that confidence with their most innovative self. Because I, I don't have any proof of this, but I know in my heart we are all born innovatively perfect and innovatively equal. I just know that from kids. And so those people kind of seem ripe. They just need a little bit of love and maybe a little practicality of, oh, I can do this. I can defer judgment. That's a behavior I can practice. I can reframe things. And so a little bit of, um, of procedure but they're right on the cusp of believing in themselves again. And those are the most gratifying. And those are the ones that I, I, uh, I wish we didn't have to pay bills, right? Because I would spend my life just finding those people and, and just loving on them for a couple hours and letting them be their best selves. Because that's what we need. And that's where the innovation comes. All right. John Sweeney, thank you very much for being a part of the Behavioral Grooves. Yeah, thank let's make you. Some sandwiches. Thank you, everybody. Welcome to our grooming session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavioral Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our innovative, yes, and improvisational minds. Ooh, I'm so digging that. <laughs> <laughs> we need to have that flexibility to go, yes, and, and what else? Was that fun or what? That was, was it? a fun conversation. Yeah, it totally was. Well, and, and having the live audience with us was absolutely fantastic and their questions were great so yeah, yeah it was it was really good so kurt what do you what do you think i mean we had we talked about a lot of things that were interesting and important what struck you as maybe the most important thing to come out of this discussion yes and <laughs> no I, the, the concept of yes and right yeah. uh, that that is it has a long history in, in improv. Yeah, how cool, right? Right? I mean, that's where that, that concept it, I, came up, and now being applied to business is really, I think, a, an interesting concept. You think about it. Improv, if you're up there and you're on stage with two or three other people and you're doing an improv show and you go, and the spaceship came down and took us away, and then you said, oh, no, no, no it didn't do that. No, it didn't. It was... <laughs> It was Uncle John in his, you know, pickup truck, and that just just ruins that yeah. whole component. So the yes and component was really about how do you work in situations where, you know, the concept that you had in your head and somebody else comes back with something that isn't directly in that same line, how do you build on that without ruining the entire production. How many corporate meetings have you sat in on where uh, where someone said, so what we were thinking about doing is this, and then someone else says, well, why don't we just do it this other way? We're basically just ruining, you know, throwing, you know, a wet rag over what was just said. They didn't say your idea is stupid, but the effect is... Well, your in effect, they did say <laughs> your idea is stupid, particularly when it comes from somebody in power, right? Where yeah. somebody brings up this idea yeah. and they go, no, you know, we, we need to do it this way. This was what we had planned. And, you know, the other idea was never even um, discussed, right? Yeah. Or, or if it was discussed, it was discussed in a very minimal and probably way that everybody knows, yeah, this isn't going anywhere. I, I have to say on a personal experience, I got to work with a team that was very good at Yes And. And that was really because one guy was absolutely committed to using it all the time. And that 
he set the, the tone for that team. Uh, he, wa he wasn't the, the team lead. In fact, I was the, the senior guy. They all reported to me. But, but he was absolutely committed to using yes hand and did such a great job of doing it on a regular basis that everyone adopted it very naturally. So what did that do for the team? How, how did the productivity or creativity of the team, was it, was it noticeably different, do it you think? It, I, I think it was. I okay. think it was noticeably better because uh, no one felt like they were unable to speak. Everybody could have an idea. Everyone could say, yes, and this. Yes, and what about this? And yes, and did we think about this? Or I, yes, and I was also thinking this. And there's always this additive effect that happens in a really natural and organic way without anyone ever feeling um, like they were being chastised or, uh, you know, pointed fingers at or anything So like there's that. an acknowledgement with the yes and then the and, which is this added element. And so it requires a bit of flexibility, right? Yes. And, and adaptability yes. by the people. Because if you have a strongly held idea about how we should be doing something or various different aspects and somebody brings up a different thing, our immediate responses usually get really defensive, right? And you, you, you have to fight that, right? That's that fight or flight component. And so you, you respond in that way. But I think the yes and hopefully gets around some of that, right? And it helps in the interplay that people have. So it does. Yeah. It, it it absolutely it's it's automatically inclusive. Uh, it is it is absolutely the opposite of the exclusive comment that says my idea is somehow competitive with yours. But of course, in the end, it doesn't need to be competitive. No, it uh, can be additive, and it goes back to some of the, the we've had conversations about psychological safety in the past. Yeah, uh, Project Aristotle specifically, right? Exactly, and yeah. so I think there's a component of this that it plays on that finding of psychological safety is tantamount to having a productive and good team environment. It really is. And in, in the brainstorming world, I mean, uh, even even the definition of brainstorming, okay. specifically, all of the definitions that I've been able to look up talk about removing inhibitions. Ah. Well, how are you going to remove inhibitions if you don't have some, some level of psychological safety? It's at the heart of what's going to make an effective brainstorm happen. And I think John didn't say this explicitly, but in some ways he's arguing good teams happen when people trust each other, when there is a yes and, when it's additive rather than being derogatory or you know, people being against each other. Exactly. And I, I want to go back. So Laszlo Bach was the uh, leader of Project Aristotle or, or significantly involved with it back at Google. Right. He was the head of, head of HR. When he it was went. head of HR. Yeah. And so one of the things that he talks about, um, and I'll, I'm going to quote this, is he says, psychological safety was far and away the most important of the five dynamics that we found. It's the underpinning of the other four. Yeah. So yeah. It, you have to take that psychological safety really, um, that it's a real important aspect. And yes, and helps in getting to that. It is a tool that teams and leaders and you can use. Like you said, you don't have to be the leader. You can start processing and, and, and demonstrating the, that, that ability of doing a yes and within your meetings with, with your counterparts that you're working with. And that lends itself to creating an environment that is psychologically safe. I would also go so far as to say that managers are the greatest um, 
are, are, are at the greatest uh, risk of not paying attention to psychological safety. Because managers in rooms, when it's their team, well, everyone is acknowledging the manager, giving deference to the manager, to the leader in that room. And the manager doesn't really have to think about, well, am, is everyone being psychologically safe? Because when they're talking to me, they're, you know, they're showing deference, they're, they're being nice to me, they're being kind, they don't talk over me, they don't say, you know, that was a stupid idea. You know, they're, they're always just, uh, just allowing me to, to say whatever I want to say. And, and I think managers are really at risk for missing out on what real psychological safety is. So it's a blind spot for many managers, then, is what you're saying. Thank you for interpreting that and boiling it down to one word, because that's exactly what it is, Kurt. It is a blind spot, yes. And, and it's not that managers are trying to purposefully not have a psychologically no. safe environment. No, it's not intentional, it's, but it's, it's environmental. It's, it's environmental. It's the context that, that breeds it. And it's one of those aspects that we just often, if we aren't paying attention to it, it can manifest itself in ways that are unintended, and so you need to be purposeful about it. And I think John talked about, you know, this is a, a concept that you have to practice, right? You have to work at. Yeah. And right. what I found really fascinating was how do you practice something? Like he said, you, you know, there was a whole conversation about how do you how do you practice improv when <laughs> right. it's improv, right? So the the, the very fact that it's improv means that it's resulting from the moment that you're responding to things that are happening and every time it's going to be different. So, so you, how do you practice? You can't rehearse you, that. You can't rehearse the moment. I am <laughs> not going to say that it's the, you know, here's exactly what the, right. the you know, the copy or the, the, the speech is, right? You have to respond and be in the moment. And yet he was saying, if you practice the process, yeah. if you work on how improv happens, that then you get better at improv. And so that then you can respond to when somebody says, a spaceship came down and took us away. And, and I don't say, no, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. But and I you, say, yes. And. Yes. And, and, and then you, you, you work at like, so, all right, so it's a spaceship. So how do I think about a spaceship? And then how do we go into that? Um, and so it's that process of, of looking at how do I respond in the moment? And I think that's an insight that can be applied well beyond improv. I think it's an insight of, thinking about all of the times that we go into situations where there's uncertainty and you can't map out, you can't rehearse all of the possible situations or outcomes that are, that are in play, but you can practice. How do I think about this? Going back to Annie Duke, yes, thinking yeah. in probabilities, thinking in ways of looking at this differently, thinking about, um, how do I make a judgment or a decision? Right. And so you practice the process. You look at the process and you actually get yourself wrapped into it so that in those situations, it doesn't matter, you know, for instance, going on in, in the world today, there is a <laughs> richest man in the world, you know, was just, you know, being, you know, supposedly 
uh, blackmailed by uh, another news article or newspaper yes. because of some unbecouth um, photos. That is not something that most people would rehearse and be able to figure out how do I respond to this situation? Yeah. How, how am I going to respond when a newspaper calls me and says, we have pictures of your genitals? Yes. You know, yeah. that's, that's not something that we're going to plan for. Oh, most not. of us, most <laughs> of us, maybe some people, but, but yeah. for most of us. And so, so I think if you are thinking about how you would respond to a situation that might be similar or that might be something that is the process of how I would go about something like this. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I also go back to research that was done in the 80s uh, from uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, you know, focused a lot on um, decision-making under uncertainty. Um, David Bell uh, has some great research on the kind of regrets that we have and how we experience decision-making under uncertainty. And those are, are great examples of how our natural biases are the natural ways that we approach situations, um, probably from an anthropological, you know, uh, story, didn't, uh, don't adequately prepare us for how to make those decisions today. Oh. And so, so getting back to Annie Duke, uh, or uh, again, these academics, having a process, having a way to more systematically think through what could be happening, what are the, what are the opportunities that we have, uh, and stepping back, engaging system two, you know, our more deliberate thinking system, is a way to help overcome bad decision-making. Right. And again, it's not saying that system one thinking is always bad. No, and sometimes no. it's training that system one to respond in an appropriate manner. Yes, and yes, to, get, to and. get into this habit, into this right of saying yes, and rather than saying, oh, that's a stupid idea. Exactly. No, it wasn't a spaceship. Yes, and. <laughs> yeah. No, but, and I think that's a really good, good component. Yeah. What else? Wow. Um, I think John said everything is a story. We have to, we have to talk about that. Yeah. So everything's a story with me is his quote. And, yeah. and, and it seems like a throwaway line. It, it, it was, uh, it, it, was. it was a throwaway line to he, him. Yeah. Right? yeah he, he, there was nothing important about that. Uh, but for me, I find that that element of a story, that narrative and how for, for John, everything is a story. And in, and the questions we asked, he, he, he always responded with a story. Every, he lit, that is literally how he responded to every single question. But think about the power that that has, right? And I think that lends itself to a lot of what is, you know, has made John such a success is because he thinks and he talks that way. Because stories have a power. Yeah. They have this element that is this vividness. It is this evolutionary component of how we have evolved. We, we have evolved as storytellers. Um, and that is is one of the ways of grabbing our attention. It's one of the ways that we remember things much better. I will remember the knife throwing story forever, forever. Yes. right. I, that's that that's placed in my mind, and just visualization of that story and mm -hmm. putting yourself in that in in his shoes. So there's an emotional element of it. I think it's just really really. Powerful, and I don't think we do that enough for most people 
in business, it, yeah. it, even in our life sometimes. How do we get away from it? Because uh, it, it's anthropological, right? I mean, golly, we've been, we've been telling each other stories for 40,000, 50,000, 100,000 years, a long time. As long as language has been around, we've been telling each other stories. We've only been writing them down you know, for the past couple thousand years. Yeah, but I think uh, storytelling isn't easy. It's not an easy component. I mean, if, if you think about, if somebody asks you a question, your immediate response is to go into the facts and figures to that response. To think about how do you tell a story to convey that same information requires more, more thought, to put more emphasis and effort into it. Some of this is cultural. I've recently read that when asked about, um, tell me about what happened at the meeting, that uh, people from Asian cultures will mm. tend to start with the broader story. Okay, so it was, um, so they might start by saying, uh, well, it was in the middle of the day, and we had about 20 people there, and it was after lunch, and it was, you know. They set the context. They set the context first, and then they go into the, the specific details. Um, Compared to people in the U.S. specifically, where the, the where someone from the U.S. will absolutely start with, okay, so John said this, and Susan said this, and we agreed on these three things, and we disagreed on these two things. Exactly. Without setting the context, without providing that. And, and so there's some cultural basis for that. But somehow we got away uh, uh, in our development in our evolution as humans to get to the 21st century, we got away from storytelling. Yeah, but storytelling is, again, powerful. So again, thinking about this from application. So we'll go back to Barry Ritholtz. And when we were talking with Barry and he was talking about the financial markets and how over the course of the past 20 years in that the, the narrative around the financial markets started to outweigh the actual facts around the market and influenced, you know, how people bought and sold and even thought about the financials, uh, stocks and bonds and everything else. And that was... And the data became less important. And the data all of a sudden was used as ancillary component. If you bought into the narrative, then that's the way that you were thinking the market was going. Motivated reasoning would get you to a certain conclusion... And, and that would actually override the raw results of the data. So, again, thinking about that, right? And Barry was, was talking about you need to go back and look at the facts. But I think there's a, another story there, uh, using story, right? <laughs> and, and that story is if narrative is so strong that it can outweigh the facts in a very rational industry such as financial services, how powerful can it be in some more of the the less quantitative, rational components? And so thinking through, how can I make a story out of this? And so I'll use this element when we do work around incentive plans and we do communication around incentive plans. So if you think about an incentive plan, pretty dry stuff. This is measures, right? It could be 20% weighted here, 60% here, 20% here. Here's the payout. It's numbers. It's, it's, you know, eligibility rules, achieve these uh, measures, accomplish these certain things. And then boom, 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 you get paid out. Right. We try in the communication to really build a narrative, build a story around that. And that story needs to focus in on 
the people who, so that it resonates with whoever the incentive is being built for. You you don't want a story that's you know ha- doesn't have any relevance to these people. So you build the story around, you know, Jane is a salesperson, and Jane is working really hard. And wow, when now Jane is now focused in on selling product X over product you know Y, because when it comes down to this, this is this is really what impacts her. And you build this story so people can get into it and they can understand the concepts are, that are there, but it also is this vivid reminder of what's going on. So It is. Yeah. Okay. And I, you're, you're giving me the music look. I, <laughs> How can you read that? For, for, it, across the room? Across. <laughs> we're a couple feet away from each other. I can see the music look in your eyes. It is. I wanted to ask, ask you about funny music. Oh, Dr. Demento or uh, Weird Al? Oh my gosh! Weird Al Yankovic. Who, who is going to know Dr. Demento? We're going to have to. Yeah, that. I think there's going to be, uh, you know, people who have a, are a certain age bracket will remember. I shaving cream, <laughs> be or, nice and clean. Yeah, oh yeah, exactly. Or, or I have a master's degree in science. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was Dr. Science, but yeah. so, similar stuff. And then Weird Al Yankovic doing all the parodies, oh, right? Yeah, um, his parodies of all the Michael Jackson stuff is fabulous. But think about some of that as a story, right? I mean, you think about yeah. you know, fat and there's a this parody of bad, right? But it's the story of, you know, heat I'm fat, you know. That, that, it's just well, great. and it, those songs, those parodies wouldn't have worked if if they weren't clever and the lyrics worked well, if yes. there wasn't a story. He couldn't just take Michael Jackson's melodies and production and just put in any nonsense words. They had to tell a story. They had to tell a story, and they had to invoke images and emotions and various different things, and you can yeah. visualize that in your mind. I, I heard Sheryl Crow once uh, talk about how she wanted to write a country album. You know, she's a you know pop star, right? right? So... Uh, so she goes to one of her friends and says, I, I think I just want to write a country record. I've lived in Nashville all these years, and I want to do that. And, and he said, you know, Cheryl, the way you write is is you, you use metaphor and similes, and, and you, you tell a story in sort of broad ideas. Like you'd say, it was a beautiful morning that I woke up to and found my life had changed. Whereas a country song says, I got up in the morning and I put on my shoes and I walked into the kitchen and I started to make bagels and the toaster didn't work. And that's why my life <laughs> and is And my bad. dog died. <laughs> and my dog died. And now <laughs> grandma's not making apple pie anymore. And my pickup truck isn't working. And, yeah. you know, so it's very specific. And so he kind of challenged her and said, the way the narrative goes in a country song is very different than the way the narrative goes in, in the way Sheryl Crow normally writes. Well, and that... So going back to our narrative talk and our story talk, right? There's different types of narrative. There right. is that that very direct narrative, which can work really well. John uses a narrative of storytelling of his own personal components to bring out these concepts and to, to tell the story of the knife throwing and to tell the story yeah. of being in St. Norbert and, uh, you know, all <laughs> right. of those, those components. <laughs> and they're vivid. And they're, they're so vivid. vivid. But, but I think there's other ways of telling stories that can have as a great of impact. And it has to be in your own voice. You can't make your story being in somebody else's voice. No. Yeah. You need to own it. All right. I know 
that for you, this this component of music, right? And and we're talking improv. What? And so are we talking improv with music? Improv with music. <laughs> and what is the most improvisational music that you can think of? Not comedy music, but improvisational music. Is this a quiz? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's ding, jazz. Ding, 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 ding. See, I edit in my own, own things. It's jazz. Yeah. And, and, and so what makes jazz so improvisational? And again, going back to yes and, is there something that, you know, from a jazz perspective, do, do they use a concept similar to yes and in jazz? Is that, would that be appropriately? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I go back to our conversation with Kuhn Smets mm-hmm. about how, uh, when he was talking about jazz as being this, this uh, improvisational symphony where there's all this structure and all this organization and all this flexibility, all this opportunity to to go your own way and to step out and interpret in the moment, in the moment. That's, you know, this is exactly what we're talking about in, in any improvisational situation, right, is it's responding it's responding to the note that was played before. And the tempo that it was played at and the volume that it was played at and the vibe that that note was played at. And now how do I respond with, with something that is actually a yes and rather than a, no, that was stupid. I'm just going to go and do my own thing. <laughs> because when we listen to music, that won't work. That will not work. No, that's going to sound stupid. There's going to be a discord there as opposed to having this element good, of... Good musical term. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, you know, yeah. blind squirrel finds a nut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, jazz. It's, it, it's pretty great. I, and I just would, would want to call out Herbie Hancock as being one of the greatest um, improvisational uh jazz players well, uh, of our generation. So so from a jazz perspective, how do you practice that? How do you practice being in the that moment and responding to when the bass player uh, decides this is my moment to do a little you know improvisational element and you are the saxophonist or the pianist what what do you pianist, right? And anyway, yeah. how do you practice? I think jazz has kind of a hard uh, school of hard knocks approach to that. Okay. That it's not explicit. It's very implicit. And if you come into a session and you're playing with other other players and you're not respectful, you're not uh, fleet-footed, you're not flexible, you're not, uh, you're not in the interplay that we, we talked about, all these things, uh, if you're not applying yes and, you just don't get asked back. Okay. You don't get asked to return to the next next session. And that's why so many really great jazz players are not young people. They, huh. you know, I mean if you think about jazz, some of the greatest jazz players that we have around today are men and women in their 60s and 70s. They are not 20-year-olds. It takes time to sort of be vetted by the system to sort of prove that you can get into a group and be a yes and person and respond in kind. But do you think there are things that could be done to help somebody become so that 20 year old that wants to be this jazz person? But, you know, how do they practice? How do they how do they get to that point where they're able to get the vibe and the tempo and the, you know, the, the note? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's a really good question. It's a really good question. I, I tend to think of jazz players as really studying the recordings of great jazz 
uh, sessions, okay. you know, to listen to Miles Davis. You know, if uh, like you could make a whole course out of just listening to Blue, um, that J- Miles Davis's uh, album. Okay, and, uh, there are multiple recording of. Um, uh, of the songs, you know, there's only five tracks on the record, and and if you go back and and you listen to the alternatives, each each individual song is played in a completely unique way every time they recorded it. It's it's really quite remarkable to open up your eyes. I'll actually I'll put that in the show notes because um, when you when you go back and you listen to to those tracks, it's just like wow, that almost doesn't sound like the same song. So so studying some of the older. Um, other better components. So again, it's yeah. it's, it's going in and, and and doing that that homework, right? Yeah. It's understanding. So in this instance, they went this way this time, but they went this way this time, trying to figure out why they they went either way, and then building that into your own repertoire. Yeah, and I think kind of blue is is a is a great example of that. Yeah. So just in in wrapping this up couple kind of key components. So I think one of the things we talked about is yes and, the importance of yes and, kind of building that into our life and building it into how we work. And it doesn't matter if you're in a management position or leadership position, you can do that and just start building that as part of how you think. In part because it drives psychological safety, yep. which is a critical element to making a successful uh, team. And then thinking about how do you practice um for things that are are by their very nature not practicable. So looking at what are the processes that I need to be thinking about, particularly as we're thinking about judgment and decision-making and those types of things. So how do I think about this so that when the situation comes up that is you know, unique, um, different, that I have a a process that I have put in place that will help me get through this and not respond in an inappropriate manner? Yeah. And then I think just thinking about how do we create more stories? How do we build yeah. into our life and how we work, particularly in a work environment? How do we how do we make that story become part of our repertoire of of how we talk about things and how we convey things to people and how we get them excited and engaged in, in what we're trying to achieve? Especially when we're persuading or bringing up new ideas. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So with that, thank you. Thank you. And keep on grooving. grooving.